My name is Sam, and I get to preach today. So we're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're new, uh, we basically go straight through books of the Bible. We're in 1 Corinthians, and we're actually halfway through chapter 9 in a um, kind of a little mini, we kind of chunk it out into many thematic little uh, sections. And so we're talking a lot about Christian freedom, Christian liberty through chapters 8 through 10. So we're going to be in there for a couple weeks. Um, We're going to get right to work. We're going to be in uh, verse 19 of chapter 9 and read uh, all the way to the end. So if you uh, have your Bibles, if not, then you should bring it. You don't got your sword, your defenseless. We got Bibles in the back, but it'll be on the screen as well. So chapter 9, verse 19 says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's Word. Let me pray. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for its ability to change our attitudes, to transform our hearts, to reform our behavior all to Your glory. Not, Father, to be accepted or approved in some way because of our self-righteousness, but, Father, in response to all that You've done already for us in Christ. So I pray that Your Word will come alive for us today, will comfort those of us who need comfort, convict those of us who need to be convicted, but move us, Father, closer to You, that we might live lives that are more glorifying than they were yesterday and more joyful than they are today. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Right. Well, we're in chapters, as I said, 8, 9, and 10. And throughout these chapters, in different ways, Paul instructs the church, this Corinthian, young, vibrant, growing, spirit-filled, but somewhat divided church, about the right way to exercise their Christian liberty, their freedom in Christ, which we talked about last week. And for the most part, It seems like a lot of the Corinthians have exercised their freedoms in Christ pretty selfishly. My, right? My, M-Y, the word, has become somewhat of the operative word in all of their relationships. Where it's my rights and my benefits and my comfort and my preferences and my ways and my expectations. And so, what you have is a church, which I hope we are never characterized by, but I don't, for a second thing, we might not be, I'm not sure, 
but a church that's characterized by um, a love for brothers and sisters that's merely sentimental. Or a unity that they have that doesn't extend beyond just gathering on Sundays. It's pretty superficial. They have sacrifice for the gospel that, quite frankly, is barely detectable. This is the Corinthian church. The most messed up church in the New Testament that we have as an example to learn from. These guys and girls, this church, young and old, rich and poor, all these people that have been gathered together in this church are a pile of spiritual adolescents that are masquerading as genuine disciples. So they've written Paul a letter, he's heard reports, and that is what Paul is addressing. Trying to get them back to a gospel-centered identity so that they'll have gospel-centered relationships and a gospel-centered mission. So to combat this, and and what he's doing here in chapters 8-10 through is he's really using his own life as an example for them to imitate. You'll see it when we get to chapter 11 after it's all done. One of the first verses is, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So he's trying to use his own life as an example here. And he is, if you know anything about Paul, a walking example of what it means when someone meets Jesus. This guy was murdering Christians with joy and delight, believing he was doing God's will. The religious of the religious, and Jesus shows up, and he becomes the Apostle Paul, a man who was later murdered for his faith. Martyred for his faith, beheaded outside of Rome. So we talk about transformation. Paul is, is, is a transformed guy. And when the Gospel grabs a hold of somebody, this is what we see. We see someone who is aiming this way, and it's turning and going this way. They transform who you are at the core. And in transforming who you are, it does transform what you do. There is action that follows identity. Your new relationship with God gives you not only a new identity, a new understanding of yourself and your relationship with God, that He's Creator, you are creation, You are accepted because of what He's done. Nothing that you have done. You are approved. There's nothing to fear. We have joy in serving Him. That's a huge shift in identity. Free from guilt. Free from shame. Free from all these things. But it it also changes your disposition towards others. Particularly your disposition towards the church. The idea that I am now adopted into a family, not just an adopted only child. And it changes your disposition to the world. How you view your place in this world. Recognizing that time is short, that your hope is outside of it and not here. But what do we do here? In a moment, and sometimes it's an extended moment, not necessarily overnight. Paul's was extended. like He changed, but then he grew for a while before he started planting churches. But in a moment, what happens is that you go from being someone ministered by the Gospel to basically being a minister for the Gospel. There's a huge change. Because Christ denies Himself everything out of love for us. This is the recognition that a believer sees. When Jesus saves someone, this is where you come to see that my God denied Himself everything out of love for us. 
And so by His Spirit, we begin to deny ourselves out of love for others. Motivated by Christ. In response to what Christ did for us. And so as the Gospel goes deeper, this is what Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians, as the Gospel goes deeper, as you mature in Christ, what does maturity in Christ look like? Paul says, look, it doesn't look like talking all religious and I'm so wonderful and full of knowledge and and super spiritual. He says, as the Gospel goes deeper, what happens is you see an individual begin to choose to go less, choose to actually go with worse, or choose even to go without altogether so that the Gospel can go forth. That's maturity. That's what happens. And what he is going to say, what I'm going to argue today, is that ministry, that word ministry, is not just the pastor's job. This passage here is not just for the professional Christians. It's for Christians. It's for anyone who would say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Did you know you were a minister of the gospel? I'll prove it to you. Ready? Ephesians 4 gives a very interesting passage because we kind of grow up or many assume that the pastors are the ones that do ministry. Did you know the pastors are the ones that are supposed to help you do ministry? Here's what it says in Ephesians 4. Verse 11 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, that being the Lord God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. I thought it was the pastor's job. No, it's our job to train you to be equipped for ministry as we do ministry ourselves. So that means if you are a Christian here, if you claim the name of Jesus Christ, you are a follower of Jesus, you would stand boldly and say, I identify with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, then I'm here to tell you the Bible says that you are more than an attender here. You are more than just a member of Damascus Road. You are more even than just a believer or a disciple, passively, of Jesus. The Bible says in more than one place, you are a sojourner in a foreign land, you are a missionary, you are an ambassador of the true King, you are a chosen messenger, you are a minister of the gospel. The Bible says even more. In 2 Corinthians 5, it actually says this in verse 18, after saying you are a new creation, the love of Christ controls you, it continues to say in verse 18 that Christ has reconciled us to Himself and He has given us a ministry of reconciliation. And it continues to say He entrusts us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making His appeal through us. You have a ministry. And one of my favorite verses in the New Testament is the very, one of the last verses of Colossians. Where he reminds a guy named Archippus. He says, remind this guy in Colossians 4.17 to fulfill the ministry he has received in the Lord. So whether you are young or old, doesn't matter. If you are a student here, and you are a Christian, if you are a retired person, and you are a Christian, if you are married, and you're a Christian, single, and you're a Christian, male, female, whatever, you are given a ministry, and you are a minister of the Gospel where you've been sent. 
And our ministry, as we talk about this Christian freedom, is not just defined, which Paul has been kind of emphasizing right now, what we don't do so that we don't offend. He talks today a little bit by, about what we do in order to save. What we do to see others one for Christ. To experience the freedom we've experienced. He gives us an example of his own attitude and own method where he shows us that you are, we are a particular kind of minister. And that we are to minister in a particular kind of way. And that we have a particular kind of commitment as we do that. And I'm telling you, it's going to make you uncomfortable, or it should, because some of us are not fulfilling the ministry we have been given by Christ. Here's what it says. The first thing Paul talks about, it begins in verse 19, that a Christian, I believe, comes, becomes a particular kind of minister. And it's a kind of minister motivated by Jesus. Not motivated by guilt. Not motivated by shame. But by what Jesus has done. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. What is the key characteristic of a Christian minister or a Christian on mission. The key characteristic, the one thing above all things that we say, this is what characterizes it. Paul says here that though he is free from all, meaning he can do what he wants in Christ. He is not obligated to anyone to do anything. In that freedom, he has chosen to become a servant to everyone. Because Christ has freed him from slavery to sin, Paul has chosen to be a slave on behalf of others. This is a Christian's essential heart attitude. Service. Now, the key to unity in the church. The key to to staying together as a church of Damascus Road, any church for that matter, the key to having an effective mission that is both passionate and, and, and exciting, but also a place of comfort and encouragement to have all those things, we must share one thing in particular, which is the mind of Christ. Having the mind of Christ means something very specific according to Philippians 2. It's not just, yeah, I want to think like Jesus. What would Jesus do? He tells us exactly how Jesus thought. The mind of Christ is acting on a belief. There's a belief there, but it's not just, I believe this and I'm going to do nothing. It's acting on the belief that serving others is more important than others serving you. That is the the key characteristic of a Christian. Young, old. Doesn't matter if you're a student here, and you're in high school, and you're like, my Christianity will start when I'm an adult. It Wrong. If you're retired, and you're like, oh, I put all my church religious time in already, cast my chips in, I get to relax and rest. No! You are a Christian, you are still a minister, you are still a servant. And this does not mean... Just serving people who you are obligated to serve like family. It also doesn't mean only serving people who you love to serve like friends. 
It's not just serving people who are easy to serve. People who appreciate your service. People who reciprocate your service. It's service to everyone. That you might win everyone. And this service is is motivated by your relationship to Jesus. It's not motivated by your relationship to those you're serving. You catch that? Because I can very easily give you reasons why I don't want to serve this person and this person and this person and this person. It's too hard. They don't serve me. They never appreciate anything I've done for them. My service is rooted in my relationship to Jesus who, when I didn't deserve it, when I didn't reciprocate it, when I didn't appreciate it, He gave everything. That is the key quality of someone who has experienced a meeting with Jesus. Though we are free to serve ourselves. We are free to serve ourselves. We are free to serve those who we love or those who are easy or those who we just like. In Christ, we become a servant to everyone. And so I think a great question for all of us, which I doubt will ever be honest without loud, is... Do you live to be served or to serve? And since we're not very honest about ourselves, consider what others would say about your life. How would they characterize you? As a servant? Doesn't mean you have to be someone who's only served, but maybe you just do nothing. Those who know the Gospel, those who have experienced that service that that Christ has poured out for us, serve joyfully. They choose to go with less. They will choose to go with worse. They will even choose to go without so that others can have more. When the disciples were arguing within Jesus' listening ear about who should serve who in the kingdom, Jesus said this. Hey guys. Well, I don't think He said hey guys, but He might have. He says in Matthew 20, verse 25, uh, guys, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great, and everyone wants to be great. I don't need to be great. Oh, you want to be great. Everyone wants to be great at something. Wants to be successful. Most discontentment is a result of not being great in whatever world of greatness you are in. But he said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to, not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. He tells you the motivation behind it. It's Himself and what He has done. So if you want to be a great fill-in-the-blank, you want to be a great husband, that's not too much to ask, wife, employee, friend, fill-in-the-blank, I want to be a great blank, then you must adopt the attitude of a servant where you've been sent to minister. In my family then, I'm a servant. Yes, to my children, I'm a servant. In my marriage, 
I want it to be awesome than become a servant. In my school, approaching it as if I'm a servant. To who? Your friends? Your teachers? In my neighborhood, I'm a servant. In my job, I'm a servant. In my church, I am a servant. In my city, I am a servant. Can you imagine if a church full of 300, 400 people adopted an attitude of service in every place they've been sent, how that would transform a community? It would make not only that community blessed, but I guarantee you, you would experience joy. But we don't often look at service that way. We're reluctant. Why? Because it's hard. And Paul will talk about that. And again, I'm not talking about the places it's easy to serve. I'm especially talking about the places and the people whom you go, I don't want to serve that person. Christian is a particular kind of ministry. He's a servant. She's a servant. Second thing Paul begins to talk about is that a Christian doesn't just minister with a particular attitude or a particular perception. They actually have a particular method in which they minister. And it's modeled after our Savior. So my service isn't just like pure humility, I'll do whatever. Our service has a purpose, it has a direction, it has some objectives. We are to minister in a particular kind of way, and Paul shows us that it's not simply enough, because he's been talking about this, it's not simply enough just to deny yourself certain things. That is certainly part of it. The denial of just being served by others. Denial of something makes you go with less. I don't have to go with less, but I will, for the glory of the gospel, for the love of this brother. But it's not just enough to deny ourselves. We actually must become something, he says, in order to reach others. What begins with denial keeps going. He says this verse that has been used and abused many times, but I love the verse. It's part of 22, 23. It says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel. A lot of alls in there. And I've used this, I've just asked myself this verse, like, am I doing this? Have I ever done this? Can I point to things where I actually am endeavoring to try this? I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Is that my attitude? And I know you go, well, you're a pastor, of course it is. Okay, step off. Be normal, right? I have the same responsibilities. I just get to be a messenger about the things that beat me up first. Okay? Does this mean, though, like I'm going to become all things to all people that might win some? I think a lot of times those who are reluctant to, to like really tangibly live this out go, well, does that mean I have to just compromise and do whatever it takes so that people like me? So that they'll like Jesus? Is this what we're talking about? Like just being sensitive to, to, to what they like and then kind of throwing some Jesus in there? Like, ha ha, I got you, Jesus, right? No. But just look at what Paul did. Because he gives a pretty detailed explanation of what he did. And what he did as, as kind of just a mentality was he did more than just deny his rights. He actually took on the freedoms of others. 
What do I mean? Well, in order to minister to all people, now all people would be all those people within his, he was going into Corinth. It wasn't just everywhere, but it certainly could apply everywhere. We're talking about Corinth, where he's been sent. Those particular people, very diverse people, he said, in order to minister to all people, and there's really two kinds of people for the most part. There's religious and irreligious. Okay? And for you, guess what? There's one you like more than the other. It's funny how we always, we'll talk, we'll talk about it, the idea of like, oh yeah, Jesus hung out with sinners, but we don't include the religious sinners. Right? We just want to hang out with the irreligious ones. Guess what? They both need Jesus. Nevertheless, Paul hung out with the religious and the irreligious. He got close to them. He dwelled with them. He spoke their language. He even went so far to embrace their traditions. He says in order to reach the religious Jews, remember he was very Jewish, he, in order to reach them with the truth of the gospel, he engaged with them in his Jewishness. Which means what? It means he respected the laws that he knew he had no legal obligation to fulfill as one freed in Christ. When he was with the Jews, he would observe food laws. If you go, oh, what a hypocrite! He knew he wasn't obligated, but that wasn't his point. He knew he'd been freed from them, but he would follow them if he could reach them with Christ. In love, he embraced what really was misguided religiosity so that he might have opportunity to point them to Jesus. Things that others would go, oh, I'm not going to do that. I've been freed from that a long time ago. Would you step into it if it meant reaching them for Jesus? Paul did. And then on the other side, he had a bunch of irreligious people who didn't care or they had some freaky spirituality that certainly wasn't Jewish the Gentiles. And what did he do? He engaged with them as his irreligious Roman as he was. Irreligious Roman? That sounds horrible. Does that mean that he became some lawless pagan and he partied with them all night long? No, but I bet he went to some parties. Alright? Jesus did. And they called Jesus a drunk and a friend of sinners. And yet Jesus was never drunk, but he certainly was a friend of sinners. And never once did Jesus stand up and go, no, 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 guys, 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 I'm on mission. Don't worry. I'm not getting drunk. I know I've got some wine here. I know I made gallons of it, but don't worry. It's all for the gospel. He never, ever took the time to do that. Do you notice that? Because he entrusted himself to the Lord and he could give a flying snarf about men's approval. Yes, I said flying snarf. All right. It meant, in regards to these irreligious pagans, that he did not stand afar condemning them for their misguided indulgences. And there were plenty he could have condemned. And he does condemn within the church often the sexual promiscuity and, and those types of things. But here's what I believe Paul did with both the irreligious and the religious. When he engaged with them, when he stepped close to them, his drive, I believe, 
was to live with them close enough so they might see what they would look like as a Christian. Catch that? He wanted them to see what they would look like. Yes, there were certainly things that they were going to have to cut off as Jesus came into their heart. They would see that. This doesn't jive with with holiness and godliness. But Paul didn't stand on a corner and condemn them. He got close to them so they could see what it would look like for them to be a Christian. He learned what they enjoyed and he enjoyed it with them. And he learned what they celebrated and celebrated with them in the same way that we will celebrate Strawberry Festival. What? I don't care about Strawberry Festival. I don't care about Kahaya days. I, I don't put it on my calendar, but I do because I care about the people in Snohomish and I care about people in Marysville and they want to celebrate it. So I'll celebrate with them. We don't even think about those kind of things where our community celebrates and why we wouldn't celebrate, well, we're going to have our Christian thing over here and you have your celebration, you pagans, over there, right? We celebrate with them so that we can see that, that we love. And so they can see us. He learned their language and he spoke it to them. Paul used whatever method he could to communicate the gospel clearly. And he learned the culture so that he could use the culture as a tool. So what does Paul do? And this is honestly, this is where my heart is and I pray that our church is. This is what Paul was doing. We can kind of break down the details, how this work, and I don't know exactly how it all worked. But what I do see Paul is doing this, he was always risking. He was always pushing. He was always asking how he needed to change the way that he ministered in order to communicate a changeless truth. He was always asking that question. Not so he could be popular. Not so we could gather, but how can I communicate the gospel more? What do I need to change? I'm not going to change the gospel. And that was the huge problem with a lot of the seeker-sensitive movement. They watered it down. That was the one thing they shouldn't have changed. But everything else is up for grabs. So that I can communicate this changeless truth here. And this is what Paul's doing. For us, this is what it means. It means compromising, yes, compromising our language, compromising our technology, our buildings, our events, they're all as tools to preach the uncompromising truth of the gospel. That makes people uncomfortable. You know why? Because they make church culture an idol. See, our ministries often get governed by what we're used to and what we know and what we like. And the question for all of us is simply, are we willing to be all things to save? Or are we just going to hold tight on one thing for the gospel? Our ministry is never to be governed by the approval or disapproval of men. That's never what it should be governed by. We don't do things so we get people's praise or avoid people's booze. But we do know that our ministry exists. Damascus Road exists I exist as a Christian for the sake of the gospel. Because I recognize too when I say that, that can easily be abused and has been abused by churches and pastors and Christians. And what I mean is that any decision we make that kind of is on the edge of like getting close to culture, we can easily go, it's for the gospel. Like attach that label to it. Oh, it's for the gospel. 
And so we suddenly, that's like the grand trump card to do whatever we want. Right? We're going to do this, you know, we're going we're gonna to host this kind of event that's kind of shady. I know it's like, you know, um, the band's coming in or, or the alcohol we're going to have. Whatever. You do something that you would go, wow, that's on the edge. I'm not sure. And we go, well, it's for the gospel. That's easy to do and I think very dangerous to do. So we have to be honest about whether or not our ministry is actually making much of Jesus or making something or much of something else or someone else. What's really being elevated here? And if the method that we're using, whatever it is, is is genuinely helping the gospel go forth, and you have to be honest about that, then we should not be scared to employ it, even if it offends every Christian there is. But if the ministry method is not actually taking the gospel forth, but is taking something else forth, then we should abandon it, even if it's successful. See, that's the hard part. When you do something that actually causes growth, but not gospel growth, you're winning people to something other than the gospel, but you're winning people. And then you're like, oh, uh, but it's successful. So uh, successful for what? You grew something big, but none of them love Jesus. They just love what you're doing. So you should stop doing it. That's the hard thing to do. There's much that we have to do as a church. There's much that we should not do, and there's a lot we can do. But Paul's method of becoming all things wasn't read in some you know, book manual of church strategy. It actually simply comes from Jesus. See, Jesus is not just the motivation for ministry. He's actually the model how we do it. And the gospel is, is not just news to believe, it's news to live. This is what Jesus did. God did not keep His creation that rebelled against Him at a distance. He involved Himself. He entered into our brokenness. And that's huge, right? Jesus emptied Himself and He got His hands dirty, if you will. God got His hands dirty. He got in the mix. And though He was nothing like us, He got close to us. Though we didn't deserve it, he got close enough. Close enough, as John says in his epistle, to see and to touch. He experienced life. He worked. He felt. He cried. Yes, he laughed. He sang. He ate and drank with sinners, both religious and irreligious. And he denied what was familiar to him. He denied what would be traditional, and he denied what might be expected. And when he ministered, you just look at how Jesus ministered. What did he do? He entered into nearly every kind of situation there was to enter in. And he entered into nearly every kind of person. You got tax collectors, not real popular. You got fishermen and prostitutes and politicians and lawyers and Pharisees and adulterers and wealthy and poor and sick and health. He entered into all of their worlds, got close to all of them, and he engaged with both the religious and the irreligious, the educated and the uneducated, the strong and the weak. And then he employed nearly every kind of communication you can think of. He had preaching and teaching and conversations and debates and storytelling and public praying and everything. 
becoming all things to all people by all means that he might win many. In his perfect ministry, which we have to say, being sinless, he had a perfect ministry. And his perfect ministry was hard and very uncomfortable. But he became all things to all people, not because it would make him accepted or comfortable. It actually killed him. He did it so that many might experience salvation. So there is a particular way for us to minister. For us to be able to speak the truth. We have to engage with people. And not just hang out with Christians. But it also doesn't mean we just look for the most broken sinners we can, as we define, and not look at the religious or the theologically prideful or whoever those Pharisees are in our world, which may be us, and believe we don't need to reach them either. Last thing Paul talks about, there's a particular attitude in serving, a particular way to serve, but then, this is the hard part, a Christian serves with a particular kind of commitment. A certain quality of it, if you will. It's noteworthy that, think about in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus, and the, the temptations that came to Jesus from Satan directly, they were all temptations that were characterized by uh, rejecting what would be the way of hardship, or the way of discomfort, or the way of self-emptying. That's where Jesus attacked, I mean, uh, Satan attacked. And quite frankly, these are the same kinds of temptations we face today. We don't want to, A, identify as ministers or serve others or get close to the dirty, broken, religious, irreligious people because it's hard. It's difficult. Many of us don't do it because it is sacrificial and we do not see present, immediate gratification reward. So Paul compares that kind of commitment to runners, which for me is really good because I hate running. Okay? You like using an analogy with running for Chris, and he's like, boom, let's go running. I'm like, this is horrible. Okay? There's no ball, there's no net, there's no purpose. We run and then we stop. I don't understand it. It sucks. Okay? So for this, it was like, oh, I understand, Lord. This is hard. Right? This makes sense to me. And it would make sense, interestingly enough, Paul's talking to the Corinthians in their language where they had the, I think it was called the Ith, can't even say, Ismithian Games which was second to the Olympics. So he, they understand athletics. It was a huge part of their culture. So he's like, let me tell you what it's like. It's like a runner. Speaking their language. So what do runners do? He gives us some very clear things. First, a runner gives his best. Runs hard. He says, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run like you're going to get it. See, the purpose of running a race, like the purpose of running, there is no purpose. The purpose of running a race, which I see a little better of a purpose, is to win. Like there's an end, a goal, you're heading somewhere, get a medal, whatever. Paul is not suggesting, though, that that we are in competition with one another, right? I'm a better Christian, get back, right? It's not like that. Not that there's no salvation for second place. What he speaks more is to the mentality of anyone in the race. 
anyone in the race should be trying to win. They are running for joy. Well, some people, like Chris does, I don't. I run for other reasons. But they are running with a goal in mind, and that's to finish the race. The purpose is, is governing them being on the track. They're not just on the race to go, I'm a runner. Okay? That's not the point. And so as we look at ministry, as you are a minister of, of responsible to a people, to get close to them, to love on them, to speak the gospel to them, but to also love them in such a way they see Jesus and how you love We are to run hard in ministry. We don't compare ourselves with other runners. Because guess what? If I ran with Chris, even if I ran my wife, I am really bad. Okay? If we ever run together, it's never together. It's at the same time, and I'm back here, and I'm sucking wind. So if I compare myself with other runners, that will be horrible. Plus, I'm bow-legged. If you ever want to watch someone run that looks funny, now I'm a super fast sprinter, so I can use that. But... In terms of looking, run, I ride a bike, it's like this, okay? The legs go out. I look freaky and weird. And some of you, you look weird running, but I can look and go, they're running. It just is, it's, it's weird looking, but I see what running looks like. So we don't play compare game because we run differently. We run at different speeds, but we run. And we run hard. In other words, think about this. If you're a Christian minister, which I've already told you, you are, Your ministry should tire you out. It should tire you out. Like a runner. If you get done, like, sometimes I feel really proud of myself that I go running, and I get done, I'm like, that was easy. I didn't run enough. Or hard enough, probably. Ministry should tire us out. We've got to ask ourselves, and you, between you and the Lord, but I would say maybe you should ask some brothers and sisters you trust in Christ. Does your investment in ministry evidence an effort to win a race? Does your investment in ministry? I'm not telling you what your investment has to look like, but just ask you, is it tiring you out? Does it look like you're running at all? Are you walking? Are you sitting as a, just a spectator watching others run? Or for those who have been, quote, in ministry a long time, are you finishing the race as well as you started? We run hard. Secondly, he says that runners exercise self-control. He says every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it for a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So don't run aimlessly. We're to exercise discipline. There's discipline of the mind and the body and all these things so we can be effective runners. And when we talk about self-control, we're often talking about just like restraint. I'm going to control myself from not doing things. What about self-control in terms of intentionality? I'm going to control my body to do certain things. Because it's both, right? Self-control is usually like, I'm just going to resist doing bad things. How about encouraging yourself and striving to do some good? We control what we don't do, yes, but we also must control what we do. And runners, think about runners, they train and they run the course set before them. And runners are actually runners before they actually are running the race. I've only heard about this because I've never actually run races, but... I assume, and I know, through lots of reading and study, they plan ahead, right? You can't just jump into a, a you know, 5K, I guess you could, not do too well. But there's, there's training, right? You plan ahead, you make decisions in advance, you learn as you are a runner over time new techniques, and you abandon maybe some of the other ones that you 
had. All so you can run more effectively. Athletes in Corinth literally had to commit, if they sign up for the games, to 10 months of training prior to the race in order to be prepared. Which means they made sacrifices what they ate. They made sacrifices of time. They made a lot of sacrifices that others would not make so that they could run the race well. We are to sacrifice and plan for ministry. We're to plan for it. Preaching the gospel, loving people, reaching the lost is not just an addendum, an extra little recreation thing on our lives. Ministry is not what we do with our leftover time or what we leave to the professionals. This is not what we fit into our schedules. It is what we build our schedules around. And that seems odd. Like, really? We, we build a schedule around ministry? Yes. We do. Those who have a hope beyond this world, those who recognize that their purpose here is primarily to glorify God, to proclaim His good news, to love people, will build their schedule around that and not just fit it in when it's convenient. We joyfully, therefore, sacrifice anything that might hinder us from taking our eyes off of Jesus. Hebrews 12, I think, says it well. He says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay, also lay aside every weight and sin. Some of the weights aren't sin. Which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame as it's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Last thing. We run hard. We run under control. But we also run with endurance. And what Paul says is, I discipline my body and keep it under control so I won't be disqualified. We need to understand that it's not a quick race. I've said this before. It's, it's not a 100-yard sprint. It's a marathon. And that's the kind of commitment that it requires long term. We run until the race is over. We don't stop halfway. We don't give up until the race is finished. And even if we have to walk, even if we have to crawl, even if we have to stop for a drink, even if we need a brother to carry us at times, even if we struggle, we don't ever step off the track and disqualify ourselves. We stay in the race. And we push hard. There's a commitment to ministry. It's not a a one-week event. It's not even a series of events. It's a way in which we view the world. It's a comprehensive way of living. And reaching people for the gospel takes a commitment because relationships take time. There are no shortcuts to becoming all things to all people that Jesus sent you to. If Jesus Christ is our model, then we see that it takes about 30 years sometimes. Think about that. Jesus dwelled with His people for 30 years and did three years of ministry. And because Jesus hasn't returned, and because the Great Commission is not fulfilled, we are still running the race. And we still need to endure in a long-term investment which means going deep in our community, going deep in your neighborhood, going deep with friendships, going deep at a church with brothers and sisters in Christ 
and digging down roots so that we have trust with one another and confidence with one another as we go out together. A Christian is a particular kind of minister, one that is motivated by Jesus in a particular kind of way they have ministering, which is modeled after Jesus. And it's a particular kind of investment that gets its strength from Jesus, who is with us always. So know this, that God has made you more than an attendee who sits, or even a member who serves on Sunday morning or other events, or even a disciple who follows as you do your devotions every day. You are a minister who goes, or you're supposed to be. And you have a ministry that no one else has, a people that you are called to reach in a particular place in a particular time. Imagine, as I've said, the transforming power of a church full of servants. What kind of servants? Servants that are devoted to getting close to broken people and working hard to proclaim the gospel. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Those are the brothers and sisters that I want to do ministry with. It's hard and it's painful, but I want to make it, as Pastor Hank in Honduras had told us, I want to make it hard for anyone I know to go to hell. They can go if they want, but I'm going to make it really difficult for them. And I'm going to do that by loving them and serving them and engaging with them and dwelling with them and speaking the truth to them in that beautiful relationship we create. Because we're either here to serve or be served. There's no in-between. And we're either striving to be all things or we are stubbornly just going to be one thing forever or running hard to win souls for Jesus, or we are standing, many of us, in running clothes, playing the part. I don't want to be that. We are here to serve. We are here to reach. We are here to work hard until we get to rest with Jesus, until he takes us home. I'll close with a verse that Paul wrote, the last last letter that Paul wrote was 2 Timothy. Knew his death was coming. And here's one of the last verses that the Apostle Paul wrote. In his perspective, knowing that he's going to die. 2 Timothy 4.7 says this, and I pray that these are the words that we can say. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. I want to love Jesus' appearing. I want to be excited to see Him. I don't want to shrink back in shame, but be joyful saying, I did it. I did what I could. I ran as hard as I could. I know it was ugly. I know I didn't run as fast as others, but I ran. And Him say, that's darn right. Then you finish the race. I pray you believe the same. Let's pray.